don't sit down. See, I did that because I wanted CJ to come up because he just got replaced by robots. So, announcements, as you know them, are over forever. He's actually fine with it. He'll cry later. But, yeah, we're all doomed. They're taking over. I love coming up here. I love the Masters University. Uh, our church has a special relationship with this school. Uh, we share a, a leader in John MacArthur and... I'm the college pastor at Grace. I love doing it because I love to see God impact the lives of collegians uh, all over our fair city. We have ministries at UCLA and SC and CSUN and over at COC and here on campus. Uh, we have a Grace on Campus study that meets actually tonight at 7 o'clock, I think, at, at Pastor Harry's house, and you're all invited. It wouldn't be a problem if you all went to Pastor Harry's house tonight. He's got plenty of snacks. Okay, maybe half, maybe half of you. If your name starts with an, an odd letter. Can you make the letters odd? Yeah, one, three, five, seven, work it out. So, anyway, I'm just really happy to be here. I think part of it is because, you know, of all the, of all the campuses I get to interact with. Uh, you know, like any parent, you're not supposed to have a favorite child, but like every parent, you do. And you didn't know that, it's true. Uh, you're my favorite child. So I just love being here. I love what you guys are doing. Uh, I love what you stand for. Uh, I love preaching at this chapel. It's, it's one of my favorite spots to talk. So will you open your Bible to Psalm 133? Pastor Adam asked me to speak about the church in a roundabout way, and so I'm gonna, like any good dispensationalist, spend the whole time in the Old Testament. So, just to spite the theological students among us, Psalm 133. I'll read it to you. It says, Behold, how good... And pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. It is like precious oil, the best on the head, coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, coming down upon the opening of his robe. It's like the dew of Mount Hermon coming down upon the mountains of Zion because there... Yahweh commanded the blessing, life forever. That's the word of the living God. Imagine with me for a minute that you go to church this Sunday. And after church, you're on your way to your car. And you're greeted at the sidewalk by a news crew. The reporter with the microphone in hand followed by a cameraman, approach you for an interview. And they want to talk to you and ask you, what goes on in this building? What are all these people doing here? And they shove a microphone in your face, and, and you, hoping to get your Screen Actors Guild card sometime in your stay in Los Angeles, decide to take advantage of the opportunity, and you answer their question. It's, it's church. I go there for lots of reasons. One, I have to because I go to Masters. Two, I go to worship Jesus. I go to be with God's people in fellowship. I go to, to sing and listen to the, the word preached. And I go to serve and use my gifts. And, and it's, it's what we do there. We go to worship Jesus. And the reporter, because it's 2017, the era of fake news, asks a penetrating follow-up question. Because it's not about what actually happens in there to the news today. 
It's about how does that experience make you feel? And so that's the question. How does it, how does it make you feel? The intrepid reporter asks you. And you say, it's, it's a good question, I'll answer it. You know, I'd say it's like this. I, when I go to church, when I'm with God's people, when I go and, and worship Jesus with my brothers and sisters in Christ, it is like precious oil on the head. Running down onto a beard. Even Aaron's beard. Unto the edge of his robes. The reporter, I think, would be taken aback. <laughs> but because he's vying for that lead anchor spot, wanting to get out of the field, he would press on and say, you know, the greasy beard analogy doesn't work for my viewers that well. Could you explain it maybe another way? And you would say, of course. You know what it's like? You know what it feels like to go to church and be with God's people? It's like dew. You know the wet stuff in the morning? It's like dew. Upon Mount Hermon. You went to Ibex, so you go there. And, and then coming down upon Mount Zion, that's what it's like when I go to church. And the reporter would look into the camera, maybe adjust his hair, and say, back to you in the studio. Throw his microphone down and quit. <laughs> what is it like to be a part of the fellowship of God's people? What is the experience of true spiritual unity like? How does it make you feel? What does it contribute to your life? And what would your life be without the fellowship of God's people? That's what I want you to think about today. And I want you to look at Psalm 133 with me and find an answer. And I hope the enigmatic illustrations from this ancient Hebrew song help you understand the priority of spiritual unity. And by the end of our time, I hope we can ask some very practical questions about what your relationship to God's people should look like. What it should look like on a campus like this, but more significantly, what it should look like in the institution that Jesus Christ himself promised to build and to bless. So let's look at Psalm 133. Let's start by surrounding it a bit. It's just three verses long, and it has a superscription on it. Look what it says. It says, a song of ascents of David. This song is part of a, a pilgrim's songbook, a traveler's handbook, a hitchhiker's guide to spirituality. The Songs of Ascent were a collection of poems within this larger collection of songs that God's people have treasured for thousands of years, and they are arranged with a great amount of purpose and one of the arrangements within this book are the Songs of Ascent, songs intended to be sung by pilgrims on their way back to Jerusalem for various annual feasts and festivals. Whether it was Passover, whether it was uh, the Day of Atonement, the Feast of Booths, uh, all the different events and 
gatherings that God's people were required to go to, they would travel from great distance to return to Jerusalem, going up Mount Zion, where Jerusalem was located, and go there to crowd around the temple to be a part of the festivities, to offer and bring their sacrifices. It would have been an epic kind of journey as they traveled, and as they went and as they returned to their homes, they would have sung this collection of songs, starting in Psalm 120, stretching to Psalm 134. The song we're looking at is part of a triad within that little group of songs. They're called the Songs of Zion, all three, 132, 133, 134, all mention Zion. Our song in verse 3, the place where the temple was, the place where Jerusalem was. This is a song that we're looking at that's been sung by God's people for thousands of years, penned by that famous shepherd-turned-monarch, songwriter, harp player, King David. It's a song that was employed for worshipers on their way to gather with God's people to remind themselves of the blessing that attends your fellowship with God's people, the blessing that accompanies true spiritual harmony and unity which is exactly what it should look like when God's people come together. This song would have proved useful in Israel's history in times of discord and civil war, but it also would have proved useful as the people returned to worship together and thought of what awaited them at that festival. They would sing, behold, how good and pleasant it is for brothers and sisters to dwell together. And in times of disunity, this would lead to brokenheartedness and a longing for a repair of the breach of the people of God. And in times of, of unity and joy, this was an expression of joyful praise. David wrote this song, and God's people have been singing it ever since, but because we don't have the same doctrine of beards that they had back then, and because uh, our understanding of the high priest is rightly informed by the new covenant, and because maybe not every Christian has a good of understanding of, of ancient Near Eastern geography, as y'all do, it's lost some of its relevance but we have to understand it in its context to regain it because it's pressing. It is of critical importance that you would understand why spiritual unity is both good and pleasant, why it's something that should be sought after by every true believer, and why it leads necessarily to, verse 3, life forever a blessing commanded by Yahweh. So let's look at it in three parts. Verse one, in praise of spiritual unity. In praise of spiritual unity. How does it start? Well, with the word behold. Behold. It's a word that means pay attention. Behold, look at it. Take a look. I have something to show you. This psalm starts by teaching us by grabbing onto our attention, by observing and praising and celebrating. It provokes God's people to pursue unity and reminds us when, what life is like when unity is not present. It's a song that wants you to see in a world marked with discord, disunity, disharmony, how beautiful unity is. So it begins by asking you to take a look. 
So whether you've experienced this in your church back home or in the fellowship that you're a part of right now in college, you know the blessings that unity can bring and it wants you to take a look. Or if you only know discord and come from a a difficult church situation or, or you've had a problem connecting with the people of God, it wants to show you the inherent beauty and value of spiritual unity. It's something worth looking at. It's something worth considering. Behold. What are we beholding? Well, before it's described, look at the second part of verse 1. Brothers to dwell together in unity. A phrase that's used identically in Deuteronomy 25. In Deuteronomy 25, and if you were not having your quiet time there this morning, Deuteronomy 25 is literal brothers who live together. It's instructions given by Moses for these guys who have united their families and their fortunes and come together for commerce and family. They live in in familial harmony, and it's giving God's regulations for this kind of a situation. What happens if one of the brothers dies? What happens if one falls on hard times? How should that be handled economically? What are the rules and and regulations that should govern the people of God when families live together? Now David takes that line and expands its scope. There's no need to necessarily restrict this to the physical or biological family. Here, in the context of the Songs of Ascent, the worshipers look at each other as family members of the people of God. These tribes, as they gather together to become one nation Israel, to become one people of God worshipers, they, on their way from weary traveler, from weary travel, need to be reminded of how beautiful this kind of harmony can be. He says that it's good and pleasant. Good emphasizes the objective and inherent nature of the unity. It is good in and of itself. It is noble. It is intrinsically good. It's vegetables. It's good. It's exercise. It's good. Pleasant is something entirely different. Pleasant is something attractive, something subjectively beautiful. But he says that spiritual unity is both good and pleasant. It's vegetables and it's ice cream. Spiritual unity has this inherent quality to it that God says is good. When when people are in harmony, when God's people are together and united, worshiping Him, this is such a great reminder for us that that unity is not something just praised by uh, those who uh, want to bring together diversity in this world, but unity is something that is intrinsically good and declared so by God. When people unite to worship God, it is inherently good. Not only is it inherently good, it's a wonderful thing to experience. I mean, imagine these ancient travelers and the problems they faced on their journey. Imagine preparing your family to travel many miles along an ancient road, sometimes accompanied by sacrificial animals and offerings, all the stuff a family needs to travel on foot a great distance, all the stuff that kids bring along, the logistics of food and water, the disagreements along the way, the ancient equivalent of arguing in the back seat, all of these things would be happening as thousands of people in throngs would come and make their way to the temple and finally arriving, the congestion and the traffic of all these people crowding into the city, finally arriving, the crowds, tempers running high, 
Messiah's travelers, finally in Jerusalem, weary from their journey, trying to stick together with their families, trying to meet up with long-lost relatives, seeking lodging, bumping into each other as they prepare for the festival and the necessities of a week-long stay, and then having to pack it all up and go home and the dangers along the roadways and the robbers and the difficulties and the logistics. How good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together. A worship song like this makes the problems that we face finding parking at church pale in comparison. You see, the journey was worth it because the destination was true spiritual unity. Before we go much farther, we have to say, with these words, dwell together, the prerequisite for unity is plurality. In other words, one person cannot live in isolation and harmony. I mean, you could, it's just not harmony. It's pretty easy to get along with yourself. You're a big fan of yourself. It's the first person you look at in the morning in the mirror. You rarely brush your roommate's teeth, though you've been tempted to. (laughs) You take care of yourself. You appreciate yourself. But unity requires plurality. It requires harmonious living with other people, and that's being tested for you as you live with people who don't have your same last name. But it's a reminder that when it comes to the gathering of God's people that you cannot participate in the blessings, the goodness and pleasantness of unity if you live your Christian life in isolation. The Proverbs say he who isolates himself does so to his own harm. And this song invites those who are predisposed to a kind of dangerous spiritual isolationism. There are those of you who are just wired to want to be by yourself. You're kind of a a, a lobo. You're a, a, a lone ranger. You're a solo person. And for those of you who think like that, this song is trying to entice you and remind you that To be by yourself is to miss out on something that God says is good and pleasant. You're being invited to enter into the joy of fellowship. And so he begins by praising spiritual unity. From there, he gives two illustrations, two portraits of spiritual unity in verses 2 and 3. The first one has got to be your favorite in in a hipster worldview. Beards are in. So let's go to the beard in verse 2. Like the precious oil upon the head, it starts at the top. Precious oil is literally good or excellent oil or very uh, special kind of oil. It's distinct. It's the best oil there was. It was a special fragrant oil. It's actually described in Exodus 30. The first portrait, the first illustration of unity is an illustration involving an oil in Exodus 30 that's called the oil of consecration. And if you go through Exodus 30, you see the recipe for how to make this oil that was used for the priests to anoint all the articles of the Mishkan, to put upon the the priests and the altar, and, and only the priests were to have this applied to them. There's a prohibition in Exodus 30 that says that you will be forbidden from using this oil on anyone outside of the priesthood. And if any Israelite outside of the priesthood was to make this recipe for oil, the consequences were they were to be cut off from among the people. 
That's the oil he's describing here. And where, well, our Pentecostal friends debate online if this prohibition from copying the recipe applies to them or not, or worse, if I'm approached by any of you essential oil kind of friends, you know, you're putting stuff on your foot and so you don't get college disease or whatever. <laughs> the guy who handed me my microphone today was like, I'm really sick. <coughs> Thanks, bro. <laughs> essential oil, help sound guy. It spreads on campus, doesn't it? It spreads. You people are diseased. <laughs> so before any essential oil enthusiasts speak to me about the oil recipe, what made this oil special in the Old Testament wasn't the ratio of olive oil to myrrh. What made it special was its intended purpose. It represented consecration. It represented worship. It was reserved for the priests. It was setting the priest apart, especially the high priest, and it conveyed a sacred blessing from God himself. This oil was poured in a ceremony on the head of the priest to represent his consecration into priestly service, and that priest in turn represented the entirety of the nation of Israel, a nation intended by God to be a priest-like people as he led them in worship of their God. And then it says that it came down upon the beard. Uh, a quick word on beards. It was Spurgeon who said, growing a beard is a habit most natural, manly, biblical, and beneficial. Write it down, <laughs> gentlemen. For a high priest, a beard was simply part of the uniform. They weren't allowed to trim the edges. It included the side locks. And because of the natural tendency of liquid and gravity, oil poured upon the priest's head would drip down upon his beard. And then it goes from there. It says not just any priest, but it says even Aaron's beard. The emphasis is upon Aaron here. It's right in the middle of this poem to Aaron's beard. A strange thing to highlight, isn't it? But Aaron was the first priest. He was the high priest. And every other high priest would come from his line. All the priests would come from his line. And he was the one with the most ornate garb, representing the people in the Holy of Holies. He was the one who would offer sacrifice on behalf of the tribes. The word Aaron here in this poem adds incredible gravitas. Aaron was the high priest. And so this oil was flowing down, representative of, of consecration, representative of, of the specialness that God's people had in their privilege of accessing Him in worship. And it represented the people being represented by the priestly uh, representative Aaron. This anointing illustration in Psalm 133 is trying to show that the priests were set apart. And spiritual unity is something that is differentiated. It is something that is set apart. It is something otherworldly. It is something supernatural, like the oil that goes from the head to the beard, down upon the robes, not just any robes, the high priest Aaron's robes, the robes that had 12 precious stones on the chest plate so that they would represent the people before God and the 12 tribes and, and all 12 tribes written on the shoulder gems. And this was a significant, 
significant piece of equipment the priest had on. And as he entered into the smoke and danger of the Holy of Holies, he would enter on behalf of these people. The whole picture is a picture of worship, of consecration. The oil is flowing, a picture of abundance and repetition. There's a directional emphasis here. The words coming down are repeated in this poem three times. And so spiritual unity is likewise. True spiritual unity is not just like a kumbaya, summer camp experience, nostalgic, remember when we were at Masters, remember when we threw balls at each other's heads, oh, unity. No, 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 no. What you have in common here is your college years. You have something that they have in common at a secular school. But what you have among the people of God breaks out the walls of a place like this and finds its display in these absurd little places called local churches full of blue-haired old ladies and people from a different neighborhood than you and people from every generation People who are wealthy and people who are poor. All being treated without distinction when they gather to worship. Interacting with one another outside of their normal social cliques, outside of their demographics. What you have in the gathering of God's people was people who did not first and foremost identify in the Old Testament tribally when they came to worship. But now were the people consecrated to Yahweh, united as one, represented by this priest. And in the new covenant with the high priest Jesus, how much more so is the church a representation of people who have left behind all the markers that this world uses to identify us. No longer slave, no longer free, no longer Jew, no longer barbarian, Scythian, all of it. Men, women, distinctions removed. Now we are first and foremost worshipers of Jesus. And in there lies our true spiritual unity. And as this picture of the oil flows, we're reminded of its inherent goodness, the pleasing fragrance of this whole thing to God, and its ultimate divine origin, because it comes from above. Fellowship, unity is expansive, it's divine, it's differentiating, it's consecrated. It is something that is holy. I mean, do you realize that you have more in common with your brothers and sisters in Christ than you have with your unbelieving family members? This is the power of spiritual unity being a gift from God himself, being something that God himself has ordained, consecrated, and set apart that comes down from above. It's why the aged apostle would say, 1 John 3, 14, we know that we have crossed over from death to life because we love the brethren. Unity is a gift from God. It's another reminder Christianity is not a Lone Ranger religion. We need each other. We need the community of believers. We need fellowship. It's why you're going to hear 
people press on you the importance of joining a church. That's why a healthy church admits people to membership. It's why there's things that you benefit from in this environment that are spiritual, that are Christian. But this place is not a church. There is no church discipline on this campus. There is, there is no church membership on this campus. This, the Lord's Supper is not an ordinance given to a Christian school. When you're baptized, you're not baptized in the name of the master's college or university. Joining a body formally as a member of a local church is an outworking of the commitment to true spiritual unity. And so you see this picture of oil unifying the people of God, setting them apart for worship, and it reminds us that spiritual unity is not something conjured up or stirred up or, or provoked by uh, each other. It's something that is a precious gift of God. It's holy. Second picture. It's like the dew of Hermon, verse 3. Yet another liquid illustration. What is dew? You know what it is. It's one of those droplets of water that appears on grass and on surfaces in the morning or evening due to condensation. Atmospheric moisture condenses faster than it can evaporate, resulting in the formation of water droplets. Wikipedia. <laughs> and this condensation happens in a particular place called Mount Hermon. Some of you have been there. It's the highest peak in Israel, way up north, 9,232 feet above sea level. What do you call these water droplets on Mount Hermon? Mountain Dew. <laughs> you, youth pastor joke. Mountain Dew. Do the Dew. But what's happening here? The highest peak in Israel, 9,000 feet above sea level is said to have a kind of dew that comes down upon Mount Zion, 100 miles away. Okay, that is not how the hydrological cycle works. Check Wikipedia. It's not that dew appears on this, this verdant, snow-capped, massive mountain in the north of Israel, and then it kind of melts down and, and runs down and comes back up Mount Zion and appears there. That's what's being described, but that's not what actually happens meteorologically. What's being portrayed? Well, please, come with me for a minute to Mount Hermon. This is a beautiful and refreshing place. This is far away from the dusty hill that Jerusalem occupies. It's way up in elevation. The, the trees and the grass and the... And the vitality of this place was legendary this is a weekend away this is the clear air this is snow and and running springs it's that kind of a place a place of wonderful refreshment and it's portrayed as an illustration of true spiritual unity because this famous legendary massive mountain peak covered with snow covered with grass covered with trees is now in its experience transported to mount zion a dusty dry arid place what he's saying is it's as if the conditions and the environment of mount hermon way up north 
appear on Mount Zion. He's describing a miracle. The wonderful refreshment of that place is now in this place. And what was Mount Zion? Well, it was God's mountain. It was where Jerusalem was, it was where the temple was, and it was where all these people were headed on pilgrimage. And it was as if, though they're bumping into each other, though they're transporting animals, they're trying to keep track of one another, they're trying to make it for the festal gathering, they're doing all this work, there's, there's problems, there's humans bumping into each other, but because of what they're going to do, because they're going to worship God as God prescribed for them, the unity they were about to experience, gathered with God's people, singing praise to God, listening to his word spoken to them, participating in what he has deemed their religious rituals that they must do in order to know him and understand his ways, the mercy they will receive on the day of atonement, all of it made the experience not a hassle, not a problem, not an issue of preference. I don't know if I want to go this week. I don't know if I like that place that much. It's too hard to get there. It's too far. I don't want to sleep in. I got tests. I got a million thousand excuses for them. It was like going to a beautiful mountain retreat. Even a church in the dumpy San Fernando Valley should feel that way to those who know what the experience is of true spiritual unity is. Friend, is that how you feel when you go to church? It's easy to feel a buzz when you come in here. You got Dan on Dan, this guy doing face melters. You got video announcements. And then you go to some dumpy little Baptist church. And you got cantankerous old people and ushers that are just pushing bulletins like they're crack cocaine. Take a bulletin, man! <laughs> that might have been my church I was describing. <laughs> man, we got this guy. I don't know if he gets commission for these things. He really pushes the bulletin. You have the ordinary problems you face when sinners come together. But if you had an attitude adjustment that reflected the truth that true spiritual unity is both good and pleasant, praiseworthy, that it's consecrated and set apart, and in the second illustration, that it is a God-wrought miracle. As if the snow-capped and verdant Mount Hermon comes to Zion. That's what going to church should be like. That's what being with God's people ought to feel like. pleasing aroma because in your heart you know to be with God's people on the Lord's day what Christians have been doing for 2,000 years what God's people have been doing since the time of the festivals if you love Yahweh then you will love to be with Yahweh's people Christianity is not a Lone Ranger religion. We need the community of believers. We need fellowship. It's why when the pastor who wrote to the Hebrews, in the epistle to the Hebrews, 
urging them and warning them about the dangers of falling away. Warning them about the reality of apostasy as persecution was on the increase in their world. As their brothers and sisters were being thrown into prison, he's telling them, sympathize with them as if you're in prison too. As they're receiving beatings and floggings, and he says, as if it's happening to your body as well. As they're having all their possessions confiscated, and they're impoverished and penniless, And the rest of the church abundantly and generously starts to give, but then starts to wonder, is there going to be enough for all of us? Are we going to be snuffed out because we're following Jesus? The pastor says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works and never neglect fellowshipping together as is the habit of some, Hebrews 10.24, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Friends, a Sunday at church should be more spiritually refreshing than a weekend in the woods or a trip to the lake or 10,000 chapel services with very handsome and eloquent preachers. (laughs) Because that's where your family is. You get it, right? I mean, it feels pretty good to be away from mom and pops right now, for some of you. But come Thanksgiving time, for many of you, you feel it. It's the nasty Santa Ana winds of Southern California, and it's your mom's turkey, and it draws you home. And there's that sense and warmth and familiarity that family brings. You see, the gospel teaches us that that existence of the biological family is intended to point us towards a longer lasting eternal reality that is the family of God so going to church on Sunday ought never to be so that you can scan your thing I know that's not the technical term in the handbook going to church on Sunday is a privilege to be with the people of God and that's why he concludes this by saying the end of verse 3 for there the Lord Yahweh commanded the blessing life forever life forever after this reference to the location of the blessing being Zion tying us back into verse 1 in the poem He brings this little concluding line that's interesting, isn't it? Where brothers dwell together, there's unity, and there God sends blessing. It's another reminder that blessing comes from above. As Derek Kidner says, blessing is bestowed, not contrived. He's showing that the blessing falls by Yahweh's command. He's not saying that unity creates eternal life. There the Lord commanded the blessing life forever. What he is saying is when we cherish and when we relish the unity that God cherishes and relishes, we share in that kind of quality of life that God shares in. Do you want the life of God to impact your life? Do you want to share in the kind of life that God has? We think far too chronologically about eternal life. 
Whereas in the scriptures, eternal life is portrayed mainly as a quality of life. Yes, it lasts forever, but what makes it eternal life, abundant life, is the quality of that life. And what God is saying here is that he commands the blessing that is spiritual unity and it equates with, not causes, but in experience equals to the life that God shares with us. When you share life with your brothers and sisters in Christ, when you are together with the people of God as sons and daughters adopted into his family, you experience a foretaste of eternal life. If you don't like going to church, you will hate heaven. Because church is a taste of that. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation gathered to worship Jesus. And we got these little pockets of them, four tastes of heaven in New Hall. New Hall. Is there anything less heaven-like than New Hall? In awesome towns, slick churches, with good greeters, big city churches with people from all over the place, little tiny churches, Churches, every one of them, with problems and imperfections manifold that are foretastes and glimpses of the spiritual unity that will be ours in glory. It's not about personal immortality in verse 3. It's about the vitality of the life of God among the people of God. Collegians, listen to me. Fellowship, true spiritual unity is the concern of this song. It's a unity known by God's people Israel in part, but realized in the new covenant as the spirit of God was poured out on all of God's people and all were made partakers and participants, all united under the great high priest Jesus who prayed to his father for the perfect unity to be a witness of our unbreakable connection to the triune God to participate in his life and to care for one another. Do not wait years to figure out where you're going to plug your life into a church. Because true spiritual unity depends on it. Look, I'm not telling you to just grab onto the first, you know, place you pop into. It's a big decision where you're going to invest your spiritual life. But don't approach it as a consumer. I don't like this church. It's blue. I don't like that pastor. He sweats too much. I don't like the music there. It's not enough. You know, I, I don't like that church. The parking. I don't like that church. They don't have... Wait a minute. Fast forward 10 years. Steelers are on. I can't go. You know, they don't have good enough stuff for my kids. Oh, they weren't that friendly to me. You know, I was part of a good church back, back home. I had a great church when I was in college, but, but now this town doesn't have any good churches. I just listen to Grace to you on the radio. It's the true word anyway. There's nothing good enough for me. I can't find a church that's good enough for me. I, I can't find one that satisfies all my 10,000 preferences. 
I'm telling you, if you think it's hard to find a church now, that attitude will just proliferate throughout the decades of your life. Friends, build a habit in your soul that longs for true spiritual fellowship. Some kind of substitutionary version happens in a community like this. But God made no promises about the success of an institution like this against the gates of hell. Jesus did say that about his church. Every instance of church in the New Testament, upwards of 95%, is an address to a local assembly of believers. A place that you are intended and even commanded to be a part of. Not just for your sake. Not just for accountability's sake. I know you got people in your dorm looking over your shoulder all day. Our churches need you. Not because we don't like empty seats. But because you have spiritual gifts that will be a blessing and a benediction to people you've never met before. Because in the next few years of your college life, you will tie your life into a people of God and those people will become like precious family to you. Going to church won't be just one more sermon. It will be a radically different experience than everything you have here. Because this is a university campus. And it loves scripture and it loves Christ. But this is not a church. And when you find true fellowship under the leadership of godly men, under the regular preaching of the word, in the administration of the ordinances that Jesus left for us, to join a church, to really be a part of it, to commit to it, you will experience true spiritual unity and you will feel something and I bet you'll describe it like oil running down the high priest's head down his beard and the edges of his robes because it's just so sacred and I bet you'll describe it as the perfect weather and beauty and vitality of Mount Hebron coming down upon Mount Zion. And for the rest of your life as you commit to a local church to use your gifts and to be of spiritual benefit to your brothers and sisters in Christ, you will see why God commanded a blessing life forever. Father, thank you for these students. Thank you for the multiplicity of giftedness that they represent. And thank you for your kindness to us, O oh God, in giving us churches. Help us to find one, to plug in. Help these students to invest their lives and their college years and build good habits of fellowship. Give them a taste of spiritual unity that will last even unto heaven, its greatest realization of it.
Thank you for uniting us by your spirit and your family. In Jesus' name.